Well, good morning. If we can, we're going to open back up to the sixth chapter of the book of Galatians. We've been going through the book of Galatians talking about our radical grace kind of series. Um, started with the book of Galatians just because it seemed to resonate with, I guess, the, the theme or the mindset that I had about this. Um, it could extend on into other uh, books. I'm considering going into Ephesians next with it um, and kind of looking as a case by case as Paul wrote his letters to these churches. What I found is I've read Galatians and Ephesians and Colossians and Thessalonians and all these, all these letters that Paul poured out his heart to his churches. You start seeing a lot of similarities and a lot of pleas to um, try and draw the church back to kind of its central message. And what's funny is, is this is not like 400 years in the future. This is not like 2,000 years in the future. This was just like a couple of decades or less in the future that Paul is writing these letters. So if we ever get the feeling like maybe we're getting off course or maybe we have uh, kind of got out of, out of what we feel like is the core central principles of the church, well, congratulations, we're right there with everybody else going back for about, you know, a century and a half, so, or a millennia and a half, actually. So you, you, you get to this point, though, like where you see with um, Paul writing to the churches, that even though it's been a while, even though we've gotten accustomed to things, even though we've gotten comfortable in our present situation, we can still stray, and we can stray away from that core message, and we can get very traditionalized and very ritualized like we have been talking about for several weeks. And that's when we need an Apostle Paul kind of moment to bring us back into orientation around Christ, faith, and the cross, and what he's called us to do. That's why we're here. That's why we were going through this, to talk about the radicalness of grace. We wanted to re-emphasize that. We like to talk about grace a lot, and we like to have dogma and doctrine and theology and discussions about the implications and the intricacies of grace. But one of the clearly most present things in the gospel is how grace radically changes you, and then you live a radically changed life because of it. And it's not radical because you know a lot of theological mumbo-jumbo. It's radical because it actually changes you, who you are, your makeup. You know, he describes it as that he's not only given you the new ability to do these things, but he's also given you a new will to do these things. You ha you're, you're completely new. You're a new creation, as he describes. And it's radical. It's completely opposite of where you were. If your new life looks a whole lot like your old life, then obviously grace wasn't that radical, was it? Didn't make that much of a change. If you got a paint job on a car and you looked at it and said, you know what, I can't really tell a big difference. Well, that'd be a lot of money wasted, wouldn't it? Say, well, man, that's not too much different. Didn't, doesn't make too much of a show. Okay, the difference is when your car goes from a rusted out, bondoed up car to this like beautiful, immaculate, shining thing, you go, whoa, that's, there's a big change that's gone on here. Well, with us, he has made us a new creature, okay? A new creation with a new life, with a new heart, with a new will, with a new desire, and all these things, all these new functions within us of the, the spirit, the hope, the joy, the peace, all these things working in themselves within us to make us this new thing. And he says, and I have a new purpose for you. 
have a new calling for you. I have a new life for you. And it's going to involve a lot of stuff that's going to be uncomfortable or grind on your naturalness and what you would naturally desire. It's going to grind on what the world and the culture will tell you is right versus wrong. And it's going to come up against all those things. And it's going to be radically different. But that is what I have created you for. So now go out and do it. And unfortunately, what we saw with Galatia is they had kind of started that way. They were doing really good. Everybody was happy on fire, jumping up and down. They were ready to go. They were doing the things, the, the radicalness of the grace of God. They were doing it. But then you had these guys come in and start trying to reintroduce the law and, and uh, circumcision and kind of remove the cross and let's talk more about self-righteousness and let's talk about self-justification and let's get back to traditionalism and ritualism. You know, the things that really make you feel really good about yourself, but don't have really any glory for God or any help to anybody else. So that's where he gets in chapter 6 as he's kind of attacked Peter, you know, and called Peter out for his racism. And then he has gone forward and called the Judaizers out for their false professions and their false teachings about removing the cross and replacing it back with circumcision and keeping of the law and how much that glories in their flesh and glories in their exclusivity and how awesome it is to be a part of that clique, which is what everybody wants. But it's really just void and nothing and does nothing for your justification. So Paul said, look, we trust in Christ. I believed in Christ for my justification because I knew the law, circumcision, these religious practices could never do it. So he's, again, reorienting us back to Christ as being the central focus. He says, look, if you get away from that, then you've just gone back to being a nice religious club, okay? This is, this is like Spanish club or math club after school. It's got about as much relevancy for your justification in life said, instead, I'm not calling you to be a part of a religious organization, a good Samaritan club. I'm calling you to sacrifice your life, actually, to live this life of radical grace. So as he's gone through this, we get to chapter 6, and he starts really applying these things in kind of an external way. Okay, So remember, we, we broached the subject last time, and we made the point. Circumcision in particular, the fact that that was the kind of the main theme of what all these people were doing. Circumcision in particular is an extremely interesting religious practice to really grab hold of as your means of justification because it is so very exclusive and hidden, okay? Obviously, it's exclusive in one sense because it excludes about 50% of the population, okay? So that's number one. Number two, it's very, it's for you, it's for yourself, okay? I mean, that's where, I mean, that is a personal, covered, hidden thing. It's all for you, so you can feel good about yourself. So again, it, it being the thing they're focused on is very interesting because it's the most inwardly man-centric action you could possibly do. If you had replaced it and said, okay, let's say giving to the poor, tithing and alms, that's going to be the thing that's going to be the main justification marker. Well, at least in that, you've kind of gone outside of yourself. You can at least feel good about yourself that you've done something good, you've helped someone out, you've done this thing for these people, you went to the homeless shelter, you fed the poor. Whatever you did, you could at least pin that, and that's outside of yourself. You, there's a lot of other practices that you could have kind of laid your claim on that were kind of outside of yourself. Circumcision is like the most selfish thing 
that you could possibly lynch all of your hopes and justification on. It's exclusive because it doesn't involve women. It's only men, and it's even more exclusive because it's really about you. So you can see this kind of dichotomy that Paul has set up here and what he's going to get into in chapter 6. He's going to say, what they're trying to get you to do with the law is the most selfish thing you could do. And if you're pinning your justification on that, then you have picked the most selfish thing to pin your justification on. He said, but in contrary, we're going to show you what radical grace looks like. In the life of a believer who through faith is working through love, who's living out those things that the Spirit has imbued them with that we talked about in chapter 5. He says, this is what it's going to look like. So chapter 6, he says, Brethren, if a man is overtaken in a fault, you who are spiritual or you who ha- are following the Spirit, who are living in the Spirit, restore such a one in the spirit of meekness, considering yourself unless you also are tempted. So he starts off saying, number one, you who are founded in following the Spirit, when you see someone who is falling astray, you don't just wash your hands of them and say, good luck, hope you find yourself back to the way, hope you, you know, have fun. You know, I did that whole thing from Matthew 18. I brought a couple people with me, and then I brought it before the church, and you're done. Sorry, go home. When you get clean enough to come back in our awesome holy society, come on back in. He says, no, you who are spiritual, your task is to restore the one who has gone astray. He says, and you do it in the spirit of meekness, which means you're doing it through the spirit of a compassionate, loving desire to see the person restored, okay? Which, again, is what we kind of contrasted with how often Matthew 18 is used, okay? It's used as an application of a law-based formula to be able to remove people who you don't want in the church anymore so you can say okay i satisfied the three steps and now they can be removed and i can feel good about myself because i kept the church rolls clean okay but that doesn't kind of go with anything that's taught in scripture and it really wasn't what jesus was meaning by that Instead, what Jesus was teaching in Matthew 18, like we've talked about multiple times, is he was saying, no, you go again, go again, and then go again, and go some more, and take some more people, and try again. Keep trying to restore the brother who has gone astray. And here he's saying it again, in the spirit of meekness, with the desire of your heart to see someone saved from their error, go after them again. Restore them. If you really are professing to be a follower of Jesus Christ and you really have the Holy Spirit within you and you're following the Holy Spirit's teachings, then you got to live like Christ. And Christ was the one who would go out of the sheepfold, go out of the comfort, go out on the mountain, go out in the faraway wilderness and chase down that one sheep that had gone astray to bring him back. That's the kind of commitment we are called to live out. If we're going to be Christians, we got to do what Christ says and live like Christ did. And that's how Christ lived. It's much easier, though, the other way. And boy, we feel really good about ourselves. We can say, oh, look, but I, I know it's a hard thing and it's so tough on me. And man, it really beats me up. But I did what I could do. I went. I took some people. We went. We asked the church. They went. You know, three times is enough. Goodbye. See you later. That's just... 
that feels really good to yourself that you can check off the boxes that you satisfied your legalism, but really doesn't go to the letter, the law, the feeling behind what Christ was, was conveying in that. So here we get that picture of, again, Paul is saying, look, I know it's really easy. It's really easy to let the one who has chosen to go astray to just go astray and let him go. He said, but you, if you're following the Spirit, need to be chasing that person. You need to be constantly going after them, trying to encourage them to come back. And it's not just coming back to the church. We sometimes get this picture of, well, it's just about getting them back in here. It's just about having them participate on Sunday mornings. That's not it. We're not bringing people back to an institution. We're bringing people back to Christ. We want them to see the freedom in Christ. We want them to come back to the peace in Christ. We want them to come back to the joy and the life that's in Christ, okay? They can come back here and occupy a pew and never move one inch back towards Christ. That's what we're going after. That's what we should be going after with ourselves. Again, that's what we've been talking about. If all we're looking for is occupying space in a building, then man, this whole blood of Christ thing was really shed in vain. What a cheap thing he bought. Instead, he says, I want you to go after them in meekness. And you do have to be careful. Look, if it wasn't challenging, he wouldn't say, be careful lest you yourself are tempted. He wasn't talking about how, you know, he's not talking about going after them in the church. He's saying, you got to go after, you're going after them out in the world where they have run astray. And you need to be careful lest you're sucked into it too. That warning wouldn't be there if we weren't traveling the difficult road to go get after them. So he says, go after them and be careful. Consider yourself, lest you also be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. You know, I caught it as I was reading back through this in in a commentary. You know, it's interesting there that he uses that phrase. And so fulfill the law of Christ. Because this whole book has been talking about the law of Moses and how they're trying to really latch back onto that bad boy to get some justification. And what Paul is going at here is he says, no, it's just one law. It's God's law. It's Christ's law. Christ is the fulfillment of all the things that Moses ever talked about. And even Christ and his messages said, this is the law to love God and to love your neighbor, to go after your brother and sister who's at fault, to love your enemy. That is fulfilling the law. So he says here, you're going to bear one another's burdens. Why? Because that is fulfilling the law. Go out here and get circumcised once, twice, or 50 times. You're still not fulfilling the law if you're not loving your brother. John will actually say in his epistles, if you're not loving your brother, you're actually following Satan. Okay? So, I mean, if you want some good, clear teaching on how we're to treat brothers and sisters and our neighbors and our enemies even, then go to the book of John because he really will not sugarcoat it at all for you. He's like, either you love them or basically you're Satan's child. Okay, so good luck with that. But you have to love them. That's not an option. And if you don't love them but still go around and say, oh, yeah, I'm a Christian, I follow Christ, then what he's saying is is you're nothing but a bold-faced liar and a follower of the devil. Well, thanks, John. I'm glad you made it really easy for me um, and didn't worry about my feelings with that one. But that's, how, that's as, as clear as he gets it. Of course, Jesus was the first one to say that. 
says, if you do not love your brother, if you call him a fool, if you attack him, guess what? I'm not in you. So there's a very clear teaching here about how radical grace transforms us to love people. And he says you're to bear one another's burdens. That's what he's saying. You're going to have people who go astray. You're going to have people struggling. You're going to have people who are falling down and not walking and not staying strong. Every one of us falls in this category. And what we don't need to get in the habit of is coating over it with a bunch of religious jargon to make us sound like we're really better than we are. To come in here and sit down and go, oh yeah, but look at me. I'm well put together. I've got it all together. I've got everything taken care of. I'm doing great. Instead, he says, no, you got to understand, we all have burdens to bear. Okay? He wouldn't say bear one another's burdens if they didn't exist. Paul's saying, well, I know you've got some burdens, but I'm pretty awesome and I don't have any, and therefore you can't bear mine, but I'll gladly bear yours in the spirit of awesome Christianness and being just the greatest eight. I mean, I don't have burdens. I've got it all figured out. I fasted about this for 40 days and 40 nights, and I'm clean. We're good. Don't worry about it. No, Paul even goes forward and he says, look, we all got burdens. He says, bear one another burdens because if a man thinks himself to be something when he is actually nothing, he deceives himself. Because look, if you think because you got out here and you, had, you got yourself circumcised that all of a sudden you have reached the pinnacle, the A-class Christian who can now walk around in holiness and awesomeness and proclaim that to everyone and show how great you are. He says, brother, I'm telling you, when you think you've got it all figured out, I'm here to remind you, you don't have anything figured out. You don't have hold of anything. You know what's awesome about the gospel message and what you see over and over again is that it's the swagger people who get cut down the lowest. And it's when the swagger people end up realizing they don't have any swagger anymore that they become the most awesome preachers for Christ. Peter stands up with his sword saying, No, Lord, you're not going to get taken. I won't. Look at me. I'm Peter. I will swagger as big as any of them. I'll step up here. You're not going to die. I won't let it. I'm never going to forsake you. I'm never going to leave you. I'll always be here. I am your chiefest apostle. All these other ragtag bunch of whoever's, they won't stand for you, but Lord, I will stand for you forever. Now, that's some swagger. Peter is the king of swagger, okay? And Jesus just kind of shakes his head and looks at him and says, Peter. And I'm sure because Jesus, as most people think, was born in the South, probably said, bless your heart. Bless your heart, Peter. <laughs> Satan wants to absolutely shred you into your smallest molecules. But don't worry, because I've prayed for you. I'm going to see you through it. And on the other side, you're going to realize all your swagger doesn't have anything. And it's when you find that you can only live through me that I will exalt you above every other person around you. So we go from swagger Peter to abandon Christ Peter to I got to go back fishing because I don't know what to do with my life to Pentecost preaching fire brimstone 3,000 people say, I mean, that's... That's what you go to. 
when Peter realized he had no swagger except to claim faith in Jesus Christ alone, then Peter is established. When Paul says, man, I had all the swagger in the world. I was a Jew of the Jew. I was circumcised on the eighth day. I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. I've got all these street creds that I can stack up behind my name. He says, and you know what happened? Jesus destroyed all my swagger on the road to Damascus. Destroyed me so much that he even blinded me. I mean, I didn't even have my own natural faculties to carry myself on. I had to be led around by somebody. I just had to say, hey guys, can y'all take me down here to Damascus because there's this dude, Ananias, and I don't even know who he is. I can't see. I don't know where I'm going. My iPhone's dead. I don't have my GPS. I don't know which way to go. I got to hold your hand, this grown, swaggering Jew of the Jew going to go persecute and kill the church you know, man that's just got all his, he's got the letters, he's got the creds, he's got everything that he needs, and now he's being led along like a little child by other men to go to this dude named Ananias to hopefully get restored, at least his eyesight. And after that moment, all of Paul's boastings, he will say, went back to Christ. He said, you know what I realized? All of that stuff that I claimed, the circumcision, the Jewness, the exalted lineage, all those things that I went back to to try to prove how great I was, says it was all destroyed in one moment. Not only was all that stuff taken away from me and became meaningless to me, even more than that, my own natural abilities were taken away from me. This is like the example that you see over and over again of people who are fantastic at something. Let's say they have, you know, you could go on, let's just from sports analogies or whatever. Someone who is an excellent ba a basketball player and blows out their ACL. Someone who is an excellent, this, and this really will always catch you, which I never understand why they do it, but this catches you in football when you're watching it all the time. You see that person who ran the 99 yards to get to that touchdown, and they get in the end, and everybody's going nuts, and they jump up to chest bump, and they land. Their knee's gone. Bye-bye career. Adios, all of your... Fantastic awesomeness, it's done with one incorrect landing from a chest bump. Height of swaggerness, now your career's gone. That's just a natural example of it. When our natural abilities get stripped away from us, whether it's our sight, our hearing, our ability to walk, stand, talk, whatever it may be, we start getting really intimate with the understanding that we are not as awesome as we think we are. And so here... He's saying when a man thinks he is something, when he is nothing, he is deceiving himself. And that's what we have to kind of grab hold of too. We are deceiving ourselves when we think we've got all this Jesus stuff figured out. And then if we just keep doing the, the traditions or the practices or whatever we're doing, that all that's, that's it. We've got it figured out. We have the most correct way of doing things, and that's all that matters. And I can walk around and say, I have got it figured it out. I do things the right way. And what Paul tells the church here, he says, when you think you're something, you're going to be realizing really quickly how much of nothing you really are. He says, because you're putting all of your boast, all your pomp, all your everything in the stuff. And mostly, when you really track it down to its root, you're putting it all back in yourself. It's not going to last. 
graciously, it's not going to last. Graciously, hopefully, at some point, Christ is going to come and rock your world and point you back to himself. Say, look, all that stuff you thought was making you holy and justified and all that stuff, I'm just here to tell you, buddy, I didn't die on the cross for you to get justified by your circumcision, your baptism, or whatever else you're toting around as your token of your awesomeness. He said, but everybody needs to realize they are not awesome. They have burdens. They have problems. And the key is to bear one another's burdens. That's the beauty of what this new creation thing called the church is all about. It's a bunch of new creatures existing together with all of their baggage. And guess what? You've got people to help you bear that. So instead of taking it on your own, which is very much my way of doing it, I'm a very, you know, we did, <laughs> we did all these, uh, this personality, um, personality thing that I had to do for school. And so we did this personality thing, and surprisingly, you know, my number one characteristic that came back was dominant, okay? <laughs> dominant personality. And basically its criteria are you're very much an overachiever and task-oriented, and as long as you can knock out some tasks, you feel really good about yourself and of course, I called it a liar, and that's not the case, but, um, you know, that's, that's how I operate. You, I come into a scene where maybe you aren't able to help me, or I don't really want your help. I can do it better my way. If I let you help me, you won't do it right. If you, I mean, it, I can just, just let me accomplish it, because if I can check off the boxes, even on my own, out on the limb, hanging on one string with a hole in my parachute, if I can still accomplish it, I will feel better about myself because I have task-oriented my life, and I've checked it off with my broken leg, with my whatever, you know. Doesn't matter. Don't help me. I can get it done, and I can probably get it done faster and better than you can. So just don't help me, all right? But what Paul is calling us to is saying, yeah, but see, when you go that route is when you really are focusing on yourself as being the ultimate achiever of all of your gains. So who's the one checking off the boxes? Well, it's you. You and all of your awesomeness and all your type A domination-oriented personality style, you got it achieved. And you can sit back and you go, man, I can take a rest because look at how much I have done. And what Paul is saying, instead, you need to be relying on your brothers and sisters to help you bear that burden because you can't get it all there. And instead of crucifying yourself on the cross every day, never really achieving what Christ would achieve in you, why don't you just let somebody help you out? So that's where he's talking about bearing one another's burdens. Plus, it is a way for us to get external, get out of ourselves, get out of our own kind of inwardness of our own whatever, circumcision, whatever it is, to get out of that and to move outside to help others. But that's what he says. You keep the law by faith through love. Well, loving of yourself is a sin, okay? That's called selfishness. When you love yourself so much that anybody else, then you're very prideful, you're very selfish, you're very conceited. So he's not talking about just having more love for yourself. 
He's talking about having your faith work out through love towards others. So whether that's by praying, then we pray for others. Whether that's by actually interceding and helping when people are struggling, we're loving through others through that way. Whether it's going out and serving in capacities that are not expected of us. That's how we're loving by faith. It's not just by your religious practices. It's not by showing up. It's not by... I mean, all, all those things are good and right things, but that's not what we were called to in its entirety. He says, no, I didn't give you all this stuff. I mean, why do you think I gave you long-suffering so you would understand the, norm, the right mode of baptism? Like, that's not, that, that does not tie up with that. Long-suffering is an external thing. Long-suffering, you've got to be long-suffering with somebody else. That's how that gets entered into, Okay. When you're talking about love, you're doing it with somebody else, not just yourself. So these are not personal internal things. These are external capabilities that are supposed to be used in that way. That's why God gave them to us. He said, I made you this new instrument, this new creation, so that you would have an effect in the world. Not in your world, in the world. That's why I said you were the salt of the world. Not for yourself, okay? You're not salt in your own dish so you can sit in your seclusion and be a hermit and love yourself and be really happy with yourself. He said, no, I've kind of created you to do stuff in the world. That's how I receive glory. He says, you go out and do your good works. Guess what? People see your good works and do what? Glorify your Father in heaven. He's going to continue with some of that here. So we know that there's, there's no greater love as Christ has said, than to lay down your life for your brothers and your sisters and your friends. There's no greater expression of that love. That's how and what we are called to. James encourages us in similar ways. When you look at James chapter 5, in the, in the ending of his letter, he'll say, you come together in the church and confess and ask for healing and laying on of hands. I mean, those are all kind of external things and also an example of people who are not ashamed to ask for help. All too often, we look at them and go, that's a little weird. Laying on of hands, anointing with oil, those kind of things, that's weird stuff. Are we still supposed to do that? Are we not supposed to do that? Have we allowed because some groups took laying on of oil and went way, 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 to, to a side with it, then now all of a sudden we go to the other ditch on the other side and go, no, you can't do that because you're being a little bit too Pentecostal. Again, if James wrote it by inspiration of the Holy Spirit and he wasn't ambiguous about it, then it just kind of gives you this idea. Maybe that's what the church was supposed to look like. It was meant to be a family, a covenanted group of fellow believers who have joined themselves together under the banner of Christ for the mutual support of one another and the mutual worship of Jesus Christ our Savior. It's meant to be that way. So rather than kind of looking at it and going, hmm, I just don't know how that would fit in our current, di our current paradigm, then we may need to go, okay, how do we change our current paradigm to allow room for that? Because otherwise, we're neglecting to do what the Holy Spirit has clearly told us we should do. 
So then he says, let every man prove his own work, and then shall he have rejoicing in himself alone and not another, for every man shall bear his own burden. Another way of looking at that would be to say, but let each one test his own work. And then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor, for each will have to bear his own load. Now, the, this verse and what Paul said in the first verse are always verses that come up and people go, okay, this is kind of like rebuke a, fuel or not, uh, rebuke a fool or don't rebuke a fool. When you write a psalm and you say rebuke one and then the next verse you say don't rebuke one, you get a little confusing. Well, here people have taken the same thing with Paul's writing. Okay, am I bearing my own burdens or are other people bearing my burdens? I'm not supposed to be glorifying in myself, but here he's saying bear your own work, do your own work, and then you can have glory in yourself versus not. Okay, so this is what this verse is talking about, at least as far as I understand it. The whole thing that's the problem at Galatia with these Judaizers is get circumcised so you can show off your circumcision to everybody else, okay? So you can glory in your neighbor's works, okay? So instead of dealing with your burdens and your problems in the setting of the church with one another through faith, through love, through compassion, through mercy. Instead, you're looking at your brother over here who's circumcised, and then you're getting circumcised, and now both of y'all feel better about yourselves because you're both circumcised, but really, you haven't addressed any of the core issues that's going on with you. Your spiritual problems have nothing to do with circumcision or uncircumcision. It goes back to your heart and the problems you're bearing. You can't bear them by just getting circumcised. You can't find relief in going after your neighbor and just wanting to look like him. So that's why he's saying you got to get at your own issues. You have burdens. You will have to bear them. And just getting circumcised to look like your neighbor over here so that y'all can all feel better about yourselves, guess what? It doesn't actually do anything for your burden. So he says you need to prove your own work, which what he's meaning is you're not comparing yourself by your religious practices to other people who have done the same religious practices and go, man, I feel really good about myself. The way you see this in application is with the Pharisees. The Pharisees, no matter what was going on in their heart, which Jesus kind of gave us a little window into that and said your hearts are a bunch of dead men and, you know, how can you escape the damnation of hell? You're a bunch of vipers. I mean, he kind of gave us a picture of that. On the outside, they didn't look like that, though, did they? They wore the garments. They had the long tassels. They did the long prayers. They gave all their alms. They recited the Torah. They sat in the temple. They were the righteous people that you looked at as a model and other pharisees would line up with other pharisees and they could all stand in a line and go look at how awesome we are and look at how much of vile wretched sinners you are that's why we won't eat with you you can't touch us in the market you're not going to be at our table we're not going to take care of you lepers get away we need to stay holy because look how awesome we are and what christ says yeah all that awesomeness not doing a thing for your heart all that greatness and all that awesome religious practice and everything that you can look at your brother over here and go, oh yeah, you're awesome too and you're holy too. Yeah, look at me. I'm holy as well. Look, look at my tassels. Come watch me pray. Come look at how much alms I'm giving. Look at how awesome I am. Inside, nothing but deadness. 
The problem is, and what Paul is kind of encouraging the people, is like, you got to let go of the awesomeness. you got to let go of the religious practice traditionalism as being your source of justification because what it's going to do is just have you comparing yourself to your neighbor and then you're going to feel better about yourself and you're going to walk away from the fact that you have hatred in your heart, you have lust in your heart, you have anger in your heart, you have maliciousness in your heart, you have deceit in your heart, you have idolatry in your heart. You have a lot of burdens that you need to unload so that you can be in closer communion to Jesus. Jesus Christ, and you're not getting there by putting on a different garment. You're not getting there by putting on your church clothes. You're not getting there by just sitting on a pew on a Sunday morning. That's not how you're doing it. Now, you'll be able to compare yourself to your neighbors that way. You can sit on the church pew and go, look who's not here. I'm here. I'm here when they weren't here. I'm here every time. I'm here every Wednesday. I pray. I fast. I read. I do all these things. Look at me. I must be doing pretty good. So-and-so's not doing that. So-and-so hasn't done that. So-and-so's not here. We are doing this. They're not doing that. Look how good we are. They're not following. All it is is comparison to your neighbor. And what Paul is saying, you need to find that your boast is in you alone. Now, again, he's not talking about boasting about your own awesomeness. What he's talking about is boasting about the work of Jesus Christ in you. He's saying you can go out and get circumcised all you want to. It doesn't do anything. Go ahead, get circumcised. But if you're boasting in that as you compare yourself with your other Jewish neighbor and then compare yourself to your other Gentile neighbor, and you can go, yeah, well, but look at me. I'm circumcised. I'm awesome. You're not. He says, then your boast is in something artificial. He says, it's not really about what's been done to you. He says, you can go out and get all this stuff done for you. And what he's saying is, your only boast is in Jesus Christ. That's why he's talking about boasting on the inward. You're boasting on the man himself. You're boasting on what Christ has done in you, not what you have done artificially to yourself so that you can compare yourself to your neighbor. So you consider yourself and your works and you don't compare with others in particular on your religious awesomeness. Because in reality, as he says, when you start thinking you're something, you're really nothing. So instead, look at yourself and your works, specifically your works in light of the works of radical grace that has gotten you where you are. Instead of, as he kind of calls us to work faith through love, through the Holy Spirit's fruits, he calls us to love one another by helping to bear each other's burdens and not add to them. That's kind of another aspect of this. He tells you to bear one another's burdens. Don't add more burdens to them. That's kind of, again, what was at fault here. Okay, so you're going to come in to this church and you're going to then start laying things on these Gentile brethren that they have to do to somehow get more righteous than they already are and to get more justified than they already have been. You're going to add more things to them, by the way, which you yourself haven't done or will ever do. You're never going to keep all the law. You're going to put more burdens. You're going to put a yoke back on these brothers who are living in glorious freedom in what Christ has done, and they're happy with just what Christ has done. 
They're satisfied. They believed in him. They're not looking for other external religious things to get them through. They've got Christ, and they're satisfied. And you're going to come in and say, okay, I'm glad you've got Christ, but... It's really about what you do. It's really about your justification. It's about your circumcision. It's about you keeping the right practices. It's about you being back. You know, all these things that they go on and on and on about. Paul says, we're, we're not supposed to be adding burdens. We're actually supposed to be taking burdens off. So instead of provoking, we're supposed to be providing for people. Instead of envying, we're supposed to be engaging and instead of being conceited, we, are, we should become considerate. That's the difference. That's the different lifestyle. And I can't think of a time where this is more important. Because all you're going to see as you scroll through Facebook or whatever is provocation, envy, and conceitedness. That's it. That's the root of just about 90% of all posts on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram at this moment in time. Provocation, envying, and conceitedness. So we have to make sure we're asking ourselves, are we doing that? Or are we doing the radically opposite thing? Are we being gracious? Are we being merciful? Are we providing for people? Are we being conscious and considerate of people? Are we living out the faith through love or are we adding more burdens to people's lives? So then he goes on and he expands this outside the household of faith. He says, let, says let in verse 6, let him that is taught in the word communicate unto him that teacheth in all good things. Do not be deceived, God is not mocked, for whatsoever a man sows, he will also reap. For he that sows to his flesh will of the flesh reap corruption, and he that sows to the Spirit shall of the Spirit reap life everlasting. And let us not be weary in well-doing, for in due season we will reap if we do not faint or give up. As we have therefore opportunity, let us do good to all men." especially to them who were of the household of faith. You see how large a letter I have written to you with my own hand. As many as desire to, be a, to make a fair show in the flesh, they constrain you to be circumcised, only lest they should suffer persecution for the cross of Christ. For neither they themselves who are circumcised keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may glory in your flesh." But God forbid that I should glory, save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world is crucified to me and I to the world. For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision is anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creature. And as many as walk according to this rule, peace be on them and mercy and upon the Israel of God. Now, Again, as he's kind of putting this out, he's moving this outside of just you and just you and your brother and sister, but kind of getting it out and including some more people in this. One of them is the one who's doing the teaching to you. Okay, He says, it is important that we are remembering 
those who are communicating the word or the gospel to you. So there's a couple of principles in this. First principle, if we can be quick about it, he'll say, you know, let the one who is taught the word share all the good things with him who is teaching. And so the first principle is that we are showing love, compassion, mercy, and we give gifts to the one who teaches. This is an old school principle, okay? This is not new. It's important though, because here's what I found, and I think you've all probably could bear witness to this as well. We will invest in the things that we really care about. We will invest in the things that we really care about. If you have a house that you love, what do you do? Well, you remodel it every so often. Why? Because you're investing in it, and everybody talks about it. Oh, that's a good investment. You know, if you put that granite in there, man, when you sell this thing 10, 20, 30 years down the road, you know, you'll get a return on your investment. We always look at houses as a good investment, and people will put money into them because they think it's a good investment, okay? People hopefully put money in things like their 401k. Why? Because they think it's a good investment. They care about it. They want to retire. So what do they do? They put money into it to support it. People put money and things into whatever they love, whatever they care about, whatever they find value in. So we have to treasure the gospel, and if we treasure the gospel, then we should, quote-unquote, put money into it. We should be taking care of the one who has been called out to live out and teach the gospel. I mean, that's just a basic principle. That's not ambiguous. That's not looking for a check. That's just, you're going to put money into the thing that you care about. And he says, but more than just that, love, compassion, and mercy to the one who teaches. So Paul wanted to make sure that the churches were responding appropriately to the ministry that is being provided to them. So Paul kind of makes similar admonitions to the churches at Rome and Corinth as well. He will talk about how, and and actually in Romans it's... um, it's interesting because in, in Romans, he's speaking actually of the churches in Macedonia and Achaia who were actually making contributions for the church at Jerusalem. So it wasn't necessarily just about paying the preacher, okay? It was actually about paying, um, it was about paying, paying to the church that was in need. So their argument was, for they were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them, for if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they ought also to be of service to them in material blessings. So what the churches at Achaia and at Macedonia thought were, man, if we have benefited so much from the church at Jerusalem for being the central focus, the original place where all of this started, and we have benefited from all of the spiritual blessings that came out of Jerusalem. They said, why shouldn't we put money into the church at Jerusalem when they're experiencing problems? So that's where this all came from. It says, man, we treasure the gospel. Thank you that Peter, Paul, James, all these brothers came out of Jerusalem. And they came to Achaia, and they came to Galatia, and they came to Macedonia, and they brought the gospel to us. So so when the church of Jerusalem, as being like the mother church, when it was struggling, guess what? Yeah, we'll send them some money. Yeah, we'll support them. Why would we not? We've benefited so greatly from the spiritual things. Same thing should fall into us when we're looking at how we are reciprocating the things that have been given to us. This principle, along with the others, highlights the points that we are not to be passive recipients of the teachings of Christ. Do we get that? 
We are not to be passive recipients of the teachings of Christ. We are called, I'm going to make up a word, but it's a good one. We are called to be active reciprocants. Not passive recipients, but active reciprocants. That should be a word, but man, I googled it and it wasn't. How could you not? That's a fantastic word. Someone who reciprocates, a reciprocant. Give me a break. I mean, I make up a lot of non-English words. That's a great English word. Active reciprocant, which would mean that we are actively reciprocating the things that we have been taught and given. You've been given grace. You want to preach about grace? You want to talk about grace? You want to stick it on a song and put it outside your church? Then by golly, you better be a reciprocant of grace. Don't go out there and talk about it and give me a bunch of dogma and theology, but don't live it because then I don't believe anything you say. Again, I'll say it again. I don't believe you can fly, whoever sang that song, I don't believe you can fly unless you get on a building and you jump. You show me you can fly. You show me you believe you can fly. Get up on that building and jump. Show me you believe what you say you believe. You say you believe in justice. Then show me how you're being just to people. You say you believe in love. Show me how you're showing love to people. Show me your compassion. Show me your mercy. Show me your grace if you're going to claim to be the stronghold of grace. You better show it to me or else I don't believe a word you're saying. Either what you're talking about is bogus or you don't really believe it because you sure aren't acting like it. Active reciprocants. That's going to be my Scrabble word to the day I die. And you can argue with me all you want to. It is a fantastic word. So what he is calling us here to do is reciprocate. You should reciprocate to the one who teaches because it's a good thing he's doing and you need to put your money into the thing that you love, your time, your compassion, your giftings back into the things that you have received. And he also says on the second principle, he says, don't be mocked because whatsoever you sow, you will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will reap of the flesh, reap corruption. And the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. The second principle is, and I know we've heard it before, we will reap what we sow. That is so clear. Christ said it. Just about every apostle says it at some point. It is the most clear teaching. You will reap what you sow. There's no escaping this principle, and there are no options in this. Okay? You're always sowing. You just need to identify to what you are sowing, or to which you are sowing, or whatever English word goes in there. You're always sowing something. You're always sowing into something. And Paul gives you two fields that you can sow into. You're either sowing to the flesh, or you're going to be sowing to the Spirit. You're always sowing something. You're not ever not sowing. You're always sowing something. It's just, in which field are you sowing today? And by the way, you will reap what you sow. If you're over here sowing to the flesh, you will reap from the flesh corruption. It's just going to happen. He doesn't say if, when, or where, or how, or not. He says it will happen. You're going to do it. Now, maybe God very, very graciously delays, moves, lightens, lessens. Maybe God in His grace obscures that a little bit 
But it's going to happen. We will reap what we sow. Other examples that he gives with this are from Job, where he says, remember, and this again, Job is one of his um, counselors here was going through this and says, who that was innocent ever perished, or where were the upright cut off? As I have seen, those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. Now again, you can go into a long discussion about Job's friends and and where they're kind of getting their basis off of. They had kind of a very fatalistic approach to things, but they're actually on topic here in a good way. If you sow into iniquity, guess what you're going to reap? Iniquity. You're plowing iniquity because you have sown into that trouble. That's where it came from, okay? Hosea will say, Sow for yourselves righteousness, reap steadfast love, break up your fallow ground, for it is the time to seek the Lord that he may come and rain righteousness upon you. It's a beautiful statement. You have plowed iniquity, you have reaped injustice, you have eaten the fruit of lies. Saying, break it up, turn around, sow righteousness. You've been sowing into this flesh, you're reaping the problems from that, go back to sowing to the Spirit. You're always sowing something. One of them's going to reap you injustice, destruction, corruption. One of them's going to reap you joy, peace, mercy, and grace. He gives the same thing to the Corinthians when he, in chapter 9 of 2 Corinthians, tells them about putting into the ministry, not muzzling the ox, all those things. But there's a there's a verse, verse 13 and 14, that I really want to use as the, the capstone for this. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others. He says you're sowing into... You're sowing into righteousness. You're sowing into generosity. You're sowing into taking care of others. And he says what you will see is that people, like we talked about with being the salt and the light, you do good works, other people see it, they glorify God. You sow into righteousness by being generous, kind, caring, and taking care of the ministers, the ministry, your church, and your church brothers and sisters. He says that two will show to the world the works of God within you and within your body of believers and ultimately bring glory to him. So we're always sowing. We just got to figure out where we're sowing to. The other thing, the last principle that he gives is it's not only proportional, okay? It's guaranteed, we know that. He says it's not when and if, but yes, you will, okay? But he also says that it's guaranteed you will reap, especially of the spiritual, you will reap if you don't give up. He says this is not like a one-and-done deal. So this is something we are constantly doing. The third principle is, guess what? Spectators will not reap says you can't sit on the bench and not reap into righteousness, not pay into whatever he's talking about here with ministry, not give back, not sow into the Spirit, and expect to reap the benefits of the Spirit. He says spectators will not reap. You're not sowing into the Spirit. You're not going to get out of the Spirit. 
He says you cannot expect to reap the benefits of the Spirit or of the kingdom without ever sowing into them. And you also have to kind of get into the game. It says it's behooved, or whatever, of you. Behooving? Is that the word? To be involved with this. The more you sow into the Spirit, guess what he says? The more you're going to reap out of the Spirit. Jesus, on numerous occasions, said, Lay down your life, take up your cross, and follow me. Guess who didn't get the benefits of following Christ? The people who didn't take up their cross and follow Christ. It's behooving, again, of us to sow into what we're trying to reap out of. And he says, if you do it, it's guaranteed. Don't give up. Don't quit. When it gets hard, especially like in today's time, don't go, man, I'm throwing up the towel. There's nothing. It's not making a difference. He says, no, you just keep going. In due season, when God decides when, you're going to reap the benefits from this. Stay with it. Persevere. Go after it. Don't give up. No matter how hard it gets or how bleak it looks, no matter if it keeps going, if you keep going out there, you keep sowing the fruit of the Spirit, you can't see the benefits of it, don't give up. You will reap in due season or you will reap in God's season. Keep going. Keep doing good to everyone, especially those who are of the household of faith, but not only them. Everyone. And remember that part of the sowing is to glorify God through showing our submission to God through doing good works to others. That's what that 2 Corinthians was talking about. So it's important, and I want to just close this. So it's important for us to remember that Paul's arguments here as he's going forward, as he's telling them, my boast is only in Christ, my boast is not in circumcision. If any man is going to keep, is any man is going to push circumcision on you, just recognize they don't keep the law. In fact, to keep the law, you have to love your brothers and your sisters. They don't do that. Therefore, they're only doing it to glorify in their flesh and for you to glorify in their flesh as well. Most importantly, though, they're doing it so they can avoid the persecution that comes with the cross. The last verse 14, or verse 13 and 14, are, well, actually, verse 12, 13, 14, are the capstone of his argument. Why were they doing this? Why did they bring circumcision back in? Why were they arguing for this kind of religious traditionalism versus submission to Jesus Christ alone? Well, it's because the cross was a sticky subject that got them in a lot of trouble, and they wanted to just kind of get it out of the way. You don't get persecuted for circumcision. You get persecuted for professing a risen Savior in Jesus Christ, the Messiah. Okay, That's what gets you hung, killed, strung out, and, and torn by lions, and all those things that Hebrews talks about. It wasn't because people were going around teaching circumcision. So why were they trying to reintroduce circumcision? Because they wanted to clear out the cross and get circumcision back on the board so everything would be hunky-dory again. Okay, So that was their motive behind all this. Self-righteousness through self-conceited traditional religious practices excluding the cross and submission to Jesus Christ, okay? 
But what Paul's argument in all this was, rely on Christ for justification, believe in Him and Him alone for your source of justification. Your selfish religious practices aren't going to do it. Rely on the works of Christ on the cross through faith as the means of your justification. Rely on the faith of Christ. Notice Paul over and over and over again in the first three or four chapters keeps making the same statement. Belief on Christ. Belief through faith. Faith in Christ. Faith of Christ. Faith. It all gets back to not the actions that you're doing, but Christ and Christ alone. Rely on the faith of Christ. Believe on Christ for your justification and not on the religious stuff you do. Your baptism, your rituals, your practices, your location, your denomination, none of these justify you. Believe on Jesus Christ alone for your justification. He's the only one. The only one that can. You work out this faith through love. It's not working out the faith through religious practices. It's not working out the faith through denominational superiority. It's not working out the faith through church history, history or historical practices. The faith that is in you is worked out through love. That's what Paul kind of got with all this. Which I think is such a profound thing. Because again, what is the thing that we probably need the most in the world at this moment? Love. Look, we got a lot of religion in this country. We got a lot of Christian religion in this country. And we're still blowing things up. It's not just another church or another denomination or another form of baptism or another Bible that's going to get us out of this. With whatever the great big social problems are, it's not the religious stuff that's going to get us out of this. It's Christians actually living like Christ commanded us to live. Working out faith through love. It is the radicalness of the love of people who would set themselves against us as our enemies that makes the most impact. It's almost like God knew what he was doing when he set this up, right? So you work out this faith through love. Love your God. Love your Savior Jesus. Love your neighbor. Love your brother and sister of faith. Love your enemy. Bear one another's burdens. Sow to righteousness and reap in the season of God. And finally, as he closes it out, he says... What's going to be the benefit? What's going to be the capstone? What's going to be the thing that I want all of you who are practicing and living this way to take with you? Peace and mercy upon all who believe in this. So may God grant us peace and mercy as hopefully we sow into the Spirit, live out our faith through love, and really surprise the world about how great Jesus is how much we have been saved from, how much grace has done to us, and how willing we are to reciprocate that grace in the lives of our brothers and sisters and our neighbors. So may God bless us to work on this.